Thank you for tuning into this edition of Lit These Days, presented by the Mark Literary Review. I'm your host and editor of the Mark Literary Review, Jessica Burgett. This week, I talked to Alex Law, a law student who runs his very own creative writing group. We talk about how to start your own writing group and how to keep people engaged once it's created. Alex also reads one of his pieces I published in The Mark a few months ago called Back When I Was Charlie. I hope you enjoy. So what got you into writing? I, I've always been a dedicated reader. I, you know, I, I read a ton of novels, a ton of books. I'm in law school. I've always loved to read. But I also always thought of myself as a writer until one day I realized I I wasn't actually writing anything. <laughs> so, you know, I broke through that little bit of dissonance and um, and decided to actually start trying to write some stuff. And I kind of stumbled my way through a few drafts of of a couple of novels and they weren't very good. Um, and more recently sort of turned my attention to short stories, which has been great. And I think a, a really game-changing thing for me as a writer to work on sort of my skills, work on my storytelling in shorter and more manageable form. When did you get your first piece published? So I I did not uh, start submitting things really at all until January or so of this this year. Um, last fall, I took a course um, at the University of Virginia uh, in their creative writing department, which was great and sort of got me rolling. And then I started a writing group in the fall. And the story that I worked on with that writing group um, was the first story I got published, which was in January. Um, and then uh, I've been fortunate that all of the stories that I've submitted since then have all gotten picked up somewhere. So it's it's been it's been an exciting start to the year in terms of getting pieces published. That's awesome that you've been able to get feedback that quickly. It, it's it's so interesting as sort of someone new navigating the world of submitting to journals and like learning sort of the flow of that world. Um, because some places get back to you in a week, some places in months, some places it could take a year um, and kind of figuring that out. So actually one of the things I did for my writing group uh, this month was I went through and cataloged about the 250 to 300 places that I thought new writers ought to think about submitting to. And I created a searchable database of them so that people in our writing group can say, oh, well, I have a story. It's 3,000 words. I want to submit it to an MFA-affiliated journal that doesn't charge a reading fee. Or I want to send it to a place that has at least 5,000 Twitter followers and charges a writing fee under $5. And you can sort of put in those things, and the spreadsheet will give you a list of the, the journals that do that. So I've been really trying to immerse myself and learn how does this sort of whole world work since I'm new to it. Well, that's really awesome that you put that together. How long did that take you to do? In between other law school stuff, I don't know, I probably passively worked on it for a few weeks. Um, it was it was a labor of love. It, it, it takes a lot to sort of manually, because I, you know, some places have a list, oh, the 10 places you should send to, or, oh, you follow this one on Twitter, and then Twitter says, well, what about this one? What about that one? So it took a while to sort of just like, build out the list. And then once I had the list, I had to go and investigate each one and sort of learn about them and um, pull the criteria that they're looking for in their submission windows. How much do they charge? And uh, what's their Twitter page? And are they affiliated with an MFA and all that kind of stuff. So um, it, it took a while. Kind of moving off of that, what made you want to start the writing group? 
Yeah, so the the class that I took at the University of Virginia was great. It sort of like functioned as like a university writing group in the sense that, you know, there were, you know, a little over a dozen wonderful young writers in the group. Um, There was sort of a leader, the professor, and it was a great format. And I got a ton out of it. I grew a lot as a writer in just a, you know, a few short months. I was like, well, just because that class is over and I got to get back to law school stuff, I still want to have that experience. And I think other people would like to have that experience too. So I reached out to people that I knew that I thought might be interested in writing or who I knew were writing. Um, And we put together, you know, the first round, there were 10 of us and it went really well. And, you know, a couple of people dropped, you know, pulled away, but we already have sort of a waiting list of people who want to join. So we filled it right back up to nine and, uh, that seems to be a good manageable number until we kind of figure out how to expand it. Um, and it's been great. It builds accountability. It helps you grow as a writer and as a reader. Um, and it makes you think about writing, you know, all the time, which, which I think is really important if you want to grow. Yeah. And you mentioned that some people dropped out. I know when I was in college, I tried to start a writing group and it was a really small group. And, you know, everyone just gets so busy that it it kind of fizzled after the first couple of meetings. So how do you keep people engaged with the writing group? Yeah. So I think like, you know, whether you're building a company or building a campaign or, or building a writing group, like one of the key things is, you know, whoever is quote unquote running the group or the organization, you know, needs to be organized. So, you know, at the beginning of the group, um, we figure out a schedule that works for everybody. Um, the meetings are set. Um, we try and make sure we start on time. We always make sure we end on time. We never go over so that we're respecting people's time. Um, I make sure that I, you know, keep up with people and give them gentle nudges to make sure they're submitting their work and to keep up with people to make sure that they're reading other people's work and giving the comments. And it's sort of one of those things that if you're diligent, if you keep up with deadlines, if you keep up with respecting people's calendar and people's time, it gets some momentum. And people start to buy in. And once they've bought in, you know, it's part of their world. It's part of their schedule. And they start to feel the benefits of it. And then it it sort of runs a little bit more easily on its own. When you're running the meeting, uh, kind of how do you run it and how do you come up with the agenda? The structure that we use, I think, is a sort of typical writing group structure where we have two rounds of review. And every session, uh, we review three people's work. So how it works is, you know, for for our group, we meet every other week on Sunday nights for three hours on Zoom. Um, The previous session, the people that we're going to review in this section have submitted their work. So people have two weeks to read it and provide line comments in, you know, like a Word document or a Google Doc or something like that. And uh, as the story leader, you know, if it's me or if it's someone else in the group, you prepare questions. And what we love to do is we like to start with the stuff we like. So we'll discuss each story for an hour. The first 10 to 15 minutes, we'll talk about things that we liked in the story or worked well. It breaks the ice. It gets people comfortable talking about in a critical way about a piece, about sharing their opinions. And then we'll sort of transition into, you know, critiques, things that we could be improved or things that might be debatable that some people liked and some people didn't. And we'll have a conversation for the next 30 minutes or so about that. And we tend to finish on what I call the post-it note where everyone in the group goes around and gives like a one to three sentence piece of advice about the piece for the author. And then the author who 
you know, we don't let talk during that discussion. They just have to listen. Um, they get the last five minutes of the hour to respond to the critique, um, offer thanks, offer other questions, um, and sort of wrap up that session. And then we sort of take a little five, you know, two, three minute break, get refreshments, come back, and we do the next story. And we sort of do three of those every two weeks. After the first round, once everyone's gone, so every two weeks, there's three groups of three. So that's about six weeks. Then we do second drafts. So we come back, they submit a second draft of the piece they've worked on. Um, and and we go, we go through that. So everyone gets two drafts of line comments um, on their piece. And then oftentimes like a third, like final comment out the door if they finish the piece and want to send it to the group. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and what would you say is the best thing about running the group? I mean, it's connected me with, with really, really creative, wonderful people. My writing has improved a ton through it. Um, I've really enjoyed that the group from the first time we ran it, which was all people that I knew really well, has now expanded where people in the group said, oh, hey, my friend wants to join. Oh, hey, this person I know I think would be great. And now there's folks in the group that you know I'm building new friendships with, which I think is awesome. Um, and uh, for me, I've mentioned this already, but it's a big accountability. It's something where, you know, I got to make sure that I'm reading these people's work. I spend between three and four hours giving comments on each story. Our stories are less than 10,000 words. They're usually around 5,000, I would say, is probably the sweet spot. But we've had some longer ones. And I spend a lot of time going through and giving comments and thinking that critically about someone else's work and really putting the effort in to be a good editor has helped me in my own writing, too. And what would you say is the most challenging thing about running the group and how do you overcome that? Well, like you've hinted at, I mean, it, it's, it, it can be challenging sometimes to make sure, you know, everyone is sort of staying on the tracks, right? Like if, if the person leading the group isn't active and isn't making sure that, you know, sending out the reminders to make sure people's there, making sure that you're prepared in order to lead the discussion and ask questions about a piece. Like there's, there is pressure to make sure that the group performs well and is giving value back to everybody. And everyone feels like the work that they're putting in, they're receiving back from other people. So there is some element of that. And it's not like it's like a class or a job where anyone's in charge. Even though I created the group with one of my good friends and another great writer, like it doesn't mean that like we're the boss of anyone. So we can't tell people what to do. We just have to sort of like encourage people that if they're going to buy into the group that like, you know, we would love to see them do the stuff that makes the group work so well. Um, so, you know, there's some challenges there, but so far it's been worth it. And, and we've gotten great buy-in. The couple of people that dropped off, it was totally fine. They realized that they weren't ready for writing to be a serious, you know, hobby, passion, you know, thing that they wanted to work on. Um, and, and we've been able to fill those seats and, and it sort of worked out well. If someone else wanted to start a writing group, what kind of advice would you give them? So uh, I would I would recommend a couple of things. One, I would make sure that you talk to one or two people beforehand and make like and make them sort of part of the leadership group. Like make sure you have buy in from like one or two people that like will always be on time. Will will sort of be there to back up the things that you're saying because that helps sort of get some momentum going. The second thing I would say is like don't be afraid to reach out to people. Like there are more people out there than you would imagine that like have thought about writing but maybe didn't take the first step. And just because they're not like the most experienced writer today doesn't mean they wouldn't be great. Like if they have an interest in it and they're willing to show up and put the work in like you'd be surprised how valuable their opinion would be 
and how valuable they could be as a member of a writing group. So don't be afraid to reach out to people um, and sort of actively pursue people to join your group. The first time I did it, it wasn't like I was like, oh, hey, does anyone want to join? And then like, you know, 15 people raised their hand. You know, I went into my network. I reached out to people directly. I asked them and, and sort of we built it brick by brick. Um, so that, that would be the second thing. The third thing I would say is like once you set an agenda, you know, stick to it as much as you can. So if you're going to meet every other Sunday, you know, do it. Make sure that you as the leader are always on time, that you always hit the deadlines. And when other people miss them, that's okay. As long as you communicate with them and you know, stuff happens in their life. Like we're all busy. This isn't our job. That's okay. But make sure that they're, they know that like the group would love for them to submit it. You know, if they're not going to get it there on Sunday, get it there on Tuesday, get it there on Wednesday, you know, make sure people know that you're on top of it and that things are moving. The fastest way to lose people in a group is for people to feel like the time that they're putting in other people are just going to waste. So you can't let people feel like their time is being wasted. And and I would say, like, make sure when you're pitching to people to join the group as a fourth thing, like that there's like a clear value that they're going to get out of it. Like at the end of it, they're going to get a great 5,000 word story that's had two rounds of edits from eight other people. So they're going to have 16 sets of comments on their story. They're going to have two rounds of an hour each where people just talk about their work and they're going to get the opportunity to think critically about other people's work in a stress-free, supportive environment. And that's like a big value for people. It's hard to find that kind of thing out there, especially once you move, you know, year, two years, five years, 10 years away from academic stuff. Like it's hard to find that and it's fun for people to engage in that way. So if you do those things, you can build a great writing group, especially with the tools we have now with Zoom or Skype or Microsoft Teams or whatever it is, is your preferred digital communication tool. It makes these things so possible and so easy. Yeah. And actually, so I published one of your pieces back when I was Charlie, uh, very recently. And that w- that actually came out of one of these writing groups. And, and you're going to go ahead and read that. Yeah, absolutely. So so back when I was Charlie was one that we did out of our writing retreats. So this is another idea if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I don't know, can I get people together for like a full, you know, 12 week writing group? That sounds like a lot. You know, one of the things that we did and what this story came out of is we've done what we call like writing retreats, where we do like an abbreviated version of that over a weekend, where we submit stuff on Friday, we read and talk about it on Saturday, we quickly turn around a second draft, we talk about it again on Sunday. And we sort of can, you can turn around a shorter story in that way. So back when I was Charlie came out of our winter retreat, and it's a story I'm excited about and very thankful that you were able to publish. Back when I was Charlie by Alex Law. I was having a Thursday's Thursday. Emails were sent for work. Plans were made for the weekend. I was just getting ready to leave my office. Then, out of the blue, Davey texts me and Jason. I hadn't spoken to either of them in years. Reuben called. Spencer died. Cancer. He asked us not to tell you the diagnosis, Charlie. Sorry. I'll send the funeral info when I get it. David Jones, Esquire. David Jones, partner at so-and-so law firm and -and so-and-so building. David Jones, family man. Before he was all that, he was just Davey, and I used to beat Davey in everything. I was the quarterback and the valedictorian, even though Davey worked out more and studied harder. I dated May, even though Davey had loved her since third grade. Now... He's pulled ahead. He's the guy in the know. I don't respond to the text. I don't know what to say. 
Jason responds right away, though, and it's clear he's broken up about the news. It's been years, but we lost one of our own. Everyone calls me Charles now, but back when I was Charlie, W was president. Culture was sticky, and we were all caught up in it. I wish we didn't say the things we said then, but back when I was Charlie, man, those were my glory days. It's not that I'm a total loser now, even if I haven't lived up to my parents' expectations. I'm doing okay. I've got a job at a bank in Sacramento. The way I remember my childhood growing up in New Jersey, me, Spencer, David, and Jason were the four kings of my hometown. Orange sodas in my garage, joints in the woods behind David's house, co-captains of the football team, even if I was the kid, everyone cheered for the loudest on Friday nights. During the summers, we chased sun-kissed girls on boardwalks that seemed to go on forever. I always got the prettiest one. I was happy then. I was Charlie. I wish I still saw the guys, but I don't. They mostly just exist now as smiling characters and the stories I tell my new friends. During the drive to my apartment, David gives the when and where for the funeral, South Jersey, on Saturday. He and Jason pledge to catch up when David flies in tomorrow. Neither comments on my lack of response. I don't know if I can handle seeing the look in their eyes when they realize I'm not what I once was. Later, I can't sleep. I read the messages from David and Jason again. Spencer can't be dead. We're all still so young, aren't we? His Instagram was all juice shots, smiling runs, and intentional shirtless photographs. The Spencer I knew was an all-conference running back. Cancer couldn't have caught him, but it did. We all get caught eventually. Whether I'm ready to or not, I need to go to the funeral. I signed the social contract by liking the message from David with the details and book a flight. I leave work early on Friday. I pack and unpack half a dozen times. If I don't wear the right things and my suddenly tasteless cufflinks and leather loafers just aren't cutting it, I will feel like an idiot for the entire trip. The last time the guy saw me, I was really me. I want to be that guy, not some Central Valley banker. At the very back of the closet, I find the, back, the black suit I used to wear to every dance, every award dinner, every Sweet 16 back when I was Charlie. It still fits, barely, and is hardly musty. Seeing it again, I think back in the day, I would have thought flying across the country in a suit with no bags to be just about the height of chic. Fuck it. I leave without bags. I'm awake and nervous for the last two hours of the flight. Growing up, I can't remember ever being nervous about anything. The plane lands in Philadelphia. My dad picks me up, even though I insisted I was fine getting an Uber. He looks older than when he did when we last video chatted. He's still driving the same white 01 Durango. We ride to the house I lived in when I was Charlie, and he fills me in on how the high school's football team is this year. Apparently, there's a kid coming for my records. The way he says it, it makes me think he wished my records would have been higher. At home, my mom hugs me and tells me how sorry she is about Spencer. She knows we had fallen out, but is decent enough not to say so. My mom is the kind of woman that dreams of place cards. No bags, she asks. I didn't bring any sounded smarter yesterday i guess it's too much to ask for you to stay a few extra days with your mother didn't i buy this for you she asks as she thumbs the lapel on my suit oh maybe i say wishing i'd packed something to change into i'll have to get you something while you're home a man can never have too many good suits i know what she really means she means she thought i was doing well but now she's not sure if i'm wearing some 20 year old suit she means maybe she wouldn't have noticed if I were in better shape and it fit better. 
she means she doesn't trust my style, so she'll have to pick something out for me. They offer to come with me to the funeral, but I decline. I say I'm getting together with the old crew, and that seems to pacify them. There's nothing more natural in the world than their son hanging out with David and Jason. I know my mom wants to ask about David. I can see the question bubbling on her lips. A valedictorian's mother always struggles when her child relinquishes their hard-earned lead in life. Even if our jobs were a tie, which they aren't, he gave his mother grandchildren. Another set of texts from David and Jason let me know they've arrived at the funeral home. I borrow my dad's car and drive over. On the way, I pass the high school. It's a weekend, but sports teams are practicing in the fields, ringing the long, tan building. Everything looks so small. I wonder whether I could still sling it if I put the pads back on. I fantasize about a rule change that would allow alumni to come back and play for one more game, what I'd give for another night under the lights. My view of the fields passes in a blur. I pull into the parking lot at the white funeral home across the street from the gas station where Jason used his fake ID to buy dip. None of us liked it, but we liked telling people we did it. David and Jason are out front. They look like me and that they're slightly older versions of themselves. They recognize my car and wave. Before I know it, I'm standing next to them. We've never really been huggers, but Jason hugs me, so David and I then become obligated to hug each other. How you doing, Charlie? It's been a while, says David. I search for condescension in his face, but come up with nothing. It's been years since I heard his voice. Oh, you know, getting by. How are the kids? I ask, even though I've never met his kids. From there, the small talk is in full swing. I get a verbal play-by-play of David's life that I already know from social media. When he dulls an accomplishment to seem more relatable, I feel like vomiting. Jason shares details of his proud blue-collar life. Getting Kathy pregnant after prom hasn't slowed him down a stitch. He's the best electrician in town, and apparently his boy plays the same position he did, even wears the same number. I don't offer much. Am I supposed to show these guys the folder of nude photos I've saved from women over the years? I realize about a minute into the conversation, outside of my Charlie stories, they're about all I've got. David lets me know Spencer's partner has asked him to give one of the speeches. He says it as though it's a small thing. Big city might love him. College might have loved him. But this was never Davy's town. This was Charlie's town. There's nothing I could do, though. So I just say, cool. We go inside. There's a line of people offering their condolences to Spencer's family. Jason and David get in line, but I excuse myself and find a seat at the back. Seeing the guys, that's one thing, but I don't want to make small talk with the supporting cast from my past. There are a dozen people here from my high school class, and I'd be fine if I never talked to any of them again. I can't remember most of their names anyway. When they come up in the stories, I usually just make up a name. No one really cares whether the girl that cut my lip with her braces was named Natalie or Jennifer. Sitting alone, I fire up one of the dating apps on my phone and swipe without looking at the photos. Modern dating is just a numbers game. Swipe right for everyone and sort out the riffraff later. My thumb is well-practiced at this and moves through well over 200 profiles before Jason can make his way down the line and back to sit with me. I put away my phone. How are you really? He asks me, eyebrows thick, gaze even, radiating the sincerity of a dad. How did the boy I knew become a father? All I became was old. Really, I'm doing okay. Still swimming in babes. 
I say, flashing a vintage Charlie smile. Jason nods. He's still got the thickest neck of any man I've ever met. May is here, just so you know, points with his eyes to the front left. David and Spencer knew I didn't love May, but Jason always believed that I did. His job on the field was to protect me. He believed in me more than anyone else. I wish we had kept in touch. I don't follow May on social media. It would be too awkward. I'm certain she won't want to talk to me. She hasn't since I broke up with her and went away to college. I wouldn't know what to say to her, even if she did. Maybe I'll go say hi after this, I offer. You should. She's divorced. She actually lives somewhere out near you. Fresno, maybe? I'm not sure. Fresno isn't really that close. The funeral director asks everyone to be seated. Jason pats my leg and gets up to go sit with David and the rest of the people from our high school class that turned up. He's a good guy. The director is a pro. The ceremony runs smoothly. Family gets up to speak. A pastor offers a psalm. A lot of people cry. I spend the entire thing looking for May, and when I find her in the crowd, I stare into the back of her head. I don't know what I want from her. If she turns around, I'll probably just look away. I understand that the family has invited one of Spencer's old friends to say a few words, says the director into the microphone. As he says it, May turns around to see who is going to stand up. We lock eyes, and the way she looks at me, I feel like when I was Charlie for the first time in a decade. That's my microphone. I stand up and walk down the center aisle to the front of the room. David has been standing up slowly, but when he sees me walking, he sits back down. At the podium, I look out to the room. Everyone looks delighted to see me, just like the old days. Spencer's partner, Reuben, David, and Jason are notable exceptions. Particularly, Reuben looks distraught, but he's never met me, so I bet I can win him over. I start my speech by thanking all of our old friends for being here. They seem to be getting a kick out of old Charlie back in the saddle. I see some smiles, some nods. I've got my shot under the lights. I beat out Davy once again. I know what the people want. Charlie's greatest hits, Spencer edition. The time we flipped Jason's dune buggy in the woods, or when we used 75 rolls of toilet paper on Mischief Night to decorate some girl's yard, or when we hired a mariachi band to march around the school's halls for a senior year prank. If I know one thing, nostalgia can dam up sadness, at least for a little while. We all love Spencer. I loved him, and I'm sorry he's gone. I bow my head and step down. I feel like a million bucks. Then, as I walk by Reuben, he grabs my arm, and his grip stops me in place. He forces me to look at him. He's a handsome older man. Anger looks unnatural on his face, one with smile lines in his eyes and mouth. He eviscerates the fake smile I offer up. Like a silent needle, he plunges shame into me, demanding I know that he knows the truth. When he releases me, I find my seat in the back. When May looks back, I know she wants me like she used to want me. But all I can think about is Spencer. Not Spencer from the greatest hits. Spencer from the last day I ever saw him. As soon as the ceremony ends, I push through the doors and move towards my dad's car. I hear people calling my name, but I ignore them. I don't want to be Charlie right now. I just want to leave. I pull the door open and heave myself onto the worn cloth seat. Then the other door opens and David sits in the passenger seat. He slams his door closed. Before he says anything, he unbuttons his suit jacket as if to declare for one and all that he is civilized. What the fuck was that, Charlie? Seriously? 
I thought everyone would want to hear the old stories. He exhales and rubs his eyes. His nails are manicured, which is obscenely adult of him. No, you didn't. You just wanted the spotlight. I start to respond, but I'm his witness now, a hostile witness that the judge will let him pummel into dust. Did you even think how Reuben would feel? I, well, I thought he might like to hear the old stories too. The old stories where you forced Spencer to chase girls. The ones where you called him a... You know what you called him, if he didn't do exactly what you said. Those stories? Hold on a second. I know what happened, Charlie. I don't know what to say to that. I don't know how to process being Charlie again and not liking the feeling. I know why Spencer didn't speak to you anymore. It grew apart. I lie with the effectiveness of a boy punching a wave to stop it. He told me how he tried to come out to you. No, how you rejected him. How you made him feel like the smallest person in the world. No, David Jones isn't the Davy that would listen to my command. How it took him years of distance from you to finally have the confidence to love Reuben. You never called him after that conversation. You never reached out. You crushed your best friend and abandoned him. That's who you were. That's the only story that matters. What am I supposed to say to that? He's right. God damn it, he's right. If Charlie was bad and I'm half the man that boy was, what does that make me? I'm not a bad guy. I scramble to think of an example, any example, to redeem myself even an inch. I voted for Bernie Sanders. It's the only thing I can think of, and it falls flat. I want David to know that I don't hate gay people, that I don't know why I said those things, that I don't know why I never called Spencer to apologize. David won't even look at me. You should have called him. It broke his heart, says David, tears budding in the corner of his eyes. God, I can't remember the last time I cried. I was just a kid. But I was more than that when I was Charlie. Wasn't I really me? You haven't been a kid for a very long time, Charlie. You had years. Years? Fuck, man, you should have called him. He pauses, words working their way up from deep down, the kind of words that are permanent. Look, I know we go way back, and I'll always love you for the times we shared, but I think this is it for us. I don't want to be friends anymore. I know we really haven't been friends for a long time, but I just had to say it. Good luck with everything. And just like that, Davy Jones is gone. Spencer is gone. I don't think I'll see Jason again either. I'm alone in the Durango. Texts from May light up my phone, chasing the ghost of Charlie from the stories. He isn't here anymore. I want to cry, but I don't. I just sit and feel fat in my old suit. Awesome. Thank you so much for for reading that. That's a really great story. You know, one of the reasons why I like it so much is for some reason, I really enjoy stories where you're supposed to hate the narrator. I don't know why, but one of my favorite novels actually is The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford. And that narrator... He's terrible, but he makes the story so much more interesting and so much better. So it kind of reminded me of that. Well, that's a that's a very high compliment, um, and and I, I appreciate that. I, I similarly, I, I've been interested in, in sort of trying to write stories that aren't like a classic hero's arc because I think I, I 
oftentimes like to read stories that have a hero's arc. And in my early sort of fumblings with writing, I sort of emulated those authors and, and would try to do that. And and there's nothing wrong with that. And I look forward to writing lots of sort of hero stories in the future. But it's fun to explore with um, sort of an anti-hero or an arc that just doesn't sort of follow the classic hero's arc. And, and, and sort of that, that that's what came through in this piece. So I'm so happy that you liked it. Thank you for taking the time out of your, your night to speak with me about this. Absolutely. And, and if anyone's listening to this and they want to, you know, talk about writing groups, you know, reach out on Twitter. I'm sure wherever you're finding this, you know, the, my Twitter will be tagged. But if not, I'm at Alex Law NJ. Um, you know, shoot me a message. Happy to talk about writing groups, writing stories, anytime. I'm so excited to engage sort of this supportive, wonderful online literary community. I'm new to it, um, but I'm learning and, and I would love to engage as much as I can. So really, if you're listening to this and you want to reach out, please do. Thank you for listening to this edition of Lit These Days, presented by the Mark Literary Review. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode.